Hi, this is Jill Jarris. From September 2017 through April 2020, this podcast was known as Olympic Fever. We've since changed its name to keep the flame alive, but we're committed to keeping our back catalog available to you. So please keep the name change and this disclaimer in mind as you listen to it. Olympic is a trademark of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, or USOPC. Any use of Olympic in the Olympic Fever podcast is strictly for informational and commentary purposes. The Olympic Fever podcast is not an official podcast of the USOPC. The Olympic Fever podcast is not a sponsor of the USOPC, nor is Olympic Fever associated with or endorsed by the USOPC in any way. The content of Olympic Fever podcast does not reflect the opinions, standards, views, or policies of the USOPC, and the USOPC in no way warrants that content featured in Olympic Fever is accurate. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show. You have to be paying attention through the entire process, because uh, if you lose concentration for a second, then you might miss something that's, that's going on. Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Olympic Fever, the podcast for Olympics fans. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? I am doing well. It is finally feeling a little fall-like. It is. It's delightful. So we won't need snow blowing on us to keep <laughs> us cool, because apparently that doesn't work so well. We will get to that in our Tokyo 2020 segment. I, d I do want to tell you one thing that is going on on Twitter. And I don't know if you remember a long time ago, we were talking about Emily Cook. I think she came up in the Team Olympic Fever update and we had watched her do some aerial stuff and she says things to the athletes right before they go down. And you were just marveling at how the athletes were having so much fun on that slope with whatever they told her. And you just wanted to hear whatever Emily Cook told her before you went to work in the morning. Right, because I said, I want Emily Cook, just like before the athletes go down the hill, I want Emily Cook to wait for me at my door, say yes. whatever she says to the athletes to get them all revved up, and then head out for my day. Yes. So I finally got that into a little audiogram, and I put that up on Twitter for some Monday motivation, and I tagged her, and uh, she retweeted it. And then Kylie McKinnon, who was an aerialist at Pyeongchang, she responded and said, and she retweeted it and said, I love this. Emily Cook really knows how to keep the spirits high during a training session. You'll just have to try aerials for yourself to find out her secret. And I said, well, I will ask. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I wouldn't injure my podcast thing. I would try on skis, <laughs> but she could send me off down the hill part of it, maybe. So, yes, I would to hear what Emily Cook says. I would at least get myself on skis and you could just sort of push me down the hill. Wow, that is that's some 
Emily Cook Appreciate motivation would, is, is that valuable to me. I am impressed. But see, even Olympic athletes know the importance of Emily Cook motivation. I will put that back on Twitter and we will see what the response is. Just pad me up. <laughs> put me in bubble wrap before you send me down. We can do that. That can be arranged. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. We are in the midst of the weightlifting world championships, and we are on our second week of looking at the sport of weightlifting. Last week, we talked with the voice of the people from the Weightlifting House podcast. This week, we're talking with the people's publisher. Dan Kent is a technical official. So this time we're going to get a little bit of weightlifting from the referee's perspective. And uh, we're going to get what they're looking for. So we know how to better watch the competition when it comes on TV. Take a listen to our conversation with Dan. Dan, thanks for coming on the show. First off, what does a technical official do? Okay, so uh, technical officials in weightlifting have to wear quite a few different hats. Sometimes you don't know when you turn up to a competition exactly what job you're going to be given, and there's a few different ones that you uh, that you could get. The most visible technical official in weightlifting are the referees. They're the three people that you see sat at the uh, the front, just in front of the stage, judging whether each lift that the uh, the athletes make is a, is a good lift or a no lift. And uh, so th that's often what people think of when they uh, they think of technical officials in in weightlifting, and. They're obviously very important because ultimately it's them who decide whether the athletes get the lifts or not. Uh, it's a majority decision between the, the three referees. They, they each press a button, red or white. Red meaning it's not a good lift according to the rules. White being it is a good lift. Majority decision goes, goes to the athlete and then they get told whether their lift is good or not. But actually there's a whole load of other guys backstage a lot of the time who are also running the competition. You've got the jury who aren't so visible as the referees, and they're usually hidden away in the shadows, watching what the referees are doing. And there's usually either three or five on the jury, and they can actually overrule the referees. If the jury unanimously decide that the referees have got the decision wrong, they can step in, stop the competition, and change, change the decision. It's often one of the moments of controversy within a weightlifting competition when the jury decide to step in, because basically it means the referees have made a mistake and, uh, and not seen something that they should have done. And so it can cause quite a bit of consternation with the coaches and the athletes and sometimes parts of the crowd as well. But there's no arguing with the jury. Once the jury have decided something, that's it. The decision is final. There's no, uh, there's no comeback to it. Other guys that you've got that are involved um, backstage, you've got the marshals. And they're the people who manage the changes in the weights that the athletes are taking so all the way through a weightlifting competition the coaches will be constantly putting changes into what weights the the athletes are going to lift and this is where a lot of the tactics in the sports come from there's a, a certain amount of bit of a game of poker going on between the athletes and the coaches uh, where they're second guessing what each other are going to do there's some pretty specific rules about what changes you're allowed to make and when you're allowed to make them, depending on time that's on the clock and so on. And the marshal's job is to manage that whole process. So when a coach comes up to the marshal's table and tries to make a change, the marshal will check and decide according to the rules whether that change is allowed. If it's not allowed, they'll just send the coach away. Uh, it's a pretty disastrous thing to happen usually because if the coach has gone to the table, it's because they need to make a change. And if they're sent away again, then it's something's gone pretty wrong for them. You've also got technical controllers. Uh, they basically manage everything backstage. So they control who's going onto the competition platform. 
they make sure that the equipment that the, the athletes are using is all correct. And there's some very stringent rules about um, things like how wide your belt is allowed to be and those kinds of things. Technical contro controllers are responsible for, for all of that kind of thing. So again, they're a, a small job, but can be a very important one. If, if something's wrong and something's breaching the rules and the, the technical controllers are responsible for, uh, for taking control and, and making sure that that doesn't make it onto the competition platform. There's a couple more that are probably worth mentioning. The speaker is the person who announces the whole competition. And that's not just for the audience to understand what's going on. It's actually really important for the athletes and coaches to hear what's happening on the competition platform because the clock in weightlifting is so crucial and how much time is on the clock is, is crucial. It's really important for athletes and coaches to know exactly when the bar has been loaded. And so normally once the bar is loaded, you've got a minute to go out and make your lift. If uh, you're following yourself, taking, taking two lifts in succession, you have two minutes. Um, but it's really critical to know exactly when that minute starts, because obviously if you're late out to the platform, you're not going to have a good day. So the speaker has actually a really, really important role in weightlifting, because if the speaker messes up, it can actually lead to the jury stepping in and awarding extra lifts to the lifters that have been disadvantaged because of it. Um, so it doesn't generally happen. The speakers that we have in weightlifting are all very experienced, especially at the international level. So it's not something that happens very often. You occasionally see it at lower level competitions. Uh, and the final set of people that I should mention uh, are the loaders, uh, who aren't technically a technical official, but actually have a really important role to play in how competitions run. Um, for two things. One, if the loaders are slow, the competition takes forever because... If you think about the number of times that bar has to be loaded during a competition, each athlete has three lifts on snatch, three lifts on clean and jerk. So if you've got 10 athletes competing, you've got 30 snatches, 30 clean and jerks to do, 60 lifts in total. If those loaders take an extra 30 seconds to load the bar on each of those lifts, suddenly your competition that was due to last an hour is running on way beyond that. So, uh, so they're, they're really important. And the other thing that's important with the loaders is that they're consistent with the time that they take to load the bar because all of the athletes and coaches who are doing their warm-ups backstage are really relying on a consistent timing coming from the loaders. So if the loaders start slow and then suddenly start speeding up towards the end of the competition, that can actually cause its own problems for, for everybody that's trying to judge when they're taking their warm-up attempts. So what you want from loaders is that they're quick, but they're consistently quick. So uh, all the way through the whole competition, each, each time they're loading the bar, it's, it's being done efficiently. Do good loaders like time themselves and work on that consistency? Or so for the higher level competitions, loaders are given specific training. So for example, the Commonwealth Games or the Olympic Games, the loaders, before the competition starts, the loaders are actually uh, given some training and, and taught how to, how to do this properly. Um, for the lower level competitions, it's very much luck of the draw who you who you get. Sometimes, sometimes you'll get guys who are very relaxed about the whole thing, uh, and sometimes you'll get get people that that do understand that uh, if they keep the bar loading quickly, then the competition keeps moving, which is what everybody wants. Really, nobody wants to be sat looking at an empty stage for a lot of the time. We want to keep the lifters going on and off the stages as quickly as possible. Really, do you have a favourite job? So as a technical official, being the referee is really the best job, partly because you get to watch all of the lifting because um, that's your job is to, uh, to sit and, and judge the lifts. 
I pride myself on being um, hard but fair as a referee. So uh, I don't take pleasure in giving people a red light for a lift. But I think it is really important that no matter what the level of competition, if a lift doesn't obey the rules of the sport, then it, it gets a red light. So I do take a lot of satisfaction in, in doing that job properly. But I'm always happy to, to help out in any of the roles, really, at a competition. It's, uh, it's ultimately the technical officials that keep the sport on the go. So um, um, volunteering to do those jobs is, is really important, I think. Do they have people that sit on the side as well, at the side of the platforms, and look at the lifts too, or is it only judged from the front? In terms of technical officials, it's only judged from the front. So the, the three referees, the centre referee sits directly in front of the platform, uh, literally looking down the eyes of, of the lifter. And the two side referees sit level with the, the centre referee, but, but out to the sides. But there's nobody looking directly from side on. Now, the, the one thing that's changed with that is with the new video playback technology that's coming in, they actually use five cameras for that. So two of those cameras are actually from the side. So in a situation where the jury is using video playback, they can actually look at a side view. So um, it's an interesting thing that they actually now get to use a view of the lifts that historically technical officials haven't, haven't used when they're judging lifts. That, that is interesting. The jury can see the video, but not the referees. That's correct, yeah. So the video playback only comes in in two circumstances. Firstly, it's only used at some competitions. It's not, not used universally, uh, at least yet. At the moment, it's only used at world-level and continental-level competitions, and it's not even used at all the continental-level competitions yet because they don't all have the technology to, to support it. Uh, it only comes into play either when the jury has a majority decision that disagrees with the referees, but not unanimous, in which case they're allowed to look at the video um, evidence in order to come to a unanimous decision. Or now, at competitions where there is the video playback, coaches get given a challenge card, and just one challenge card for the whole competition, which they can use on their own athletes' lift if they believe that the referees have got the decision wrong and they want the, they want the jury to, to take another look at it. It's very difficult to get a lift overturned because in order for the coach to have a successful challenge, the jury would have had to not have not already seen whatever the problem was and then see it on the on the video re replay so um it's uh, it's a difficult process to go through to get one overall but it, this rule only came in very recently and it's caused a little bit of controversy within weightlifting because historically weightlifting has always been a sport where there's no comeback once the referees and the jury make their decision coaches and athletes just have to put up with it and uh um, and get on with the, the competition. And this has introduced for the first time the idea that referees and juries might make mistakes. And the, so the, like in a lot of sports where the video playback technology has, has come in, it's creating a gray area now, which there, there is a fear amongst some technical officials that it's gonna lead to more problems with athletes and coaches arguing the toss about, uh, about decisions. Whereas in the past, because there's no possibility of overturning a decision, it's always been a case of, okay, well, I don't agree, but let's carry on with the competition. And so it's an interesting change that's come into the sport, but it's only come in at the very highest level. We don't see it at national level competitions yet. Will we see it at Tokyo? I believe they are planning to use uh, the, the challenge system in Tokyo, yes. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how often that gets used. It was, it was used at the, um, the last World Championships and over the, the whole of the competition, 
there was only a handful of times when um, the video payback was used. And as far as I know, there wasn't a single successful challenge to a decision. So uh, I think it's, it's, it's something that's unlikely to have a huge impact in terms of the decisions that are made. Um, but it just does change the dynamic just a little bit. Um, the other thing that's interesting is because weightlifting is a sport where pretty much all of the tactics on competition day are around managing the clock and either creating or losing time from the clock. Putting a challenge in provides another opportunity for coaches to, to create a bit of extra time because as soon as the challenge is made, the clock stopped until the, uh, the challenge has been adjudicated. So I've got no doubt that we'll see coaches using that as another tool in their arsenal of, of ways to create extra time for their lifters. Is there any way for another competitor to challenge a competitor's lift saying, oh, that was legal, but I think it was Ill- illegal? No, the, uh, the the rules as they are right now are that you can only challenge the decision on your own lift or your own lifter's lift if you're a coach. I think that's probably a good decision because I think if you were able to challenge other athletes, we'd see a lot more challenges going in, which could really disrupt the flow of the competition. So I'm, I'm, I'm actually quite glad that they introduced this uh, system without bringing that into it because that would be a whole new level of, uh, of tactics then because then there'd be all kinds of possibilities of just using it to put opponents off. So uh, if, if you knew that an opponent was going to be taking two lifts in succession, you could challenge after their first lift just to put them off their rhythm and again change the timing on the clock. So uh, I think it's probably a good decision that they didn't, didn't bring that into it. Talk us through a competition day for you. Like when does your day start and what kind of things do you have to do before the meet? And then let's kind of talk about the different positions, how they get ready and what, what they have to do in terms of like weigh in and things like that. Yeah. So sometimes the day starts very early for technical officials. Um, weigh-ins in weightlifting happen two hours before the uh, the group starts for that particular group. And sometimes at big competitions where they've got a lot of lifters to fit in during the day the groups can start fairly early in the morning so obviously the weigh-ins start even earlier um, if you're um, one of the unlucky technical officials who's been uh, rostered on to do the, the first weigh-in in the morning then you have to get there nice and early to check that all of the equipment's there for weigh-in check the scales so there the scales are working which uh, is a problem that can sometimes occur they have to be uh, calibrated scales so uh, you have to check that as well then once the weigh-in starts, your job is essentially to make sure that the, the athletes are um, weighing in correctly. It's a pretty, pretty simple job, really, but it's something that you have to take very seriously and make sure that the right athlete is weighing in under the right name, those kind of things. And there are some rules that you have to apply at weigh-in time. And there's a rule called the 20 kilo rule, um, which means that the athletes' opening attempts for snatch and clean and jerk have to come to within 20 kilos of the the total that they registered when they entered the competition so uh, if uh, if i'm entering a competition i'm saying that my total is going to be 200 when i enter my nominated opening lifts at, at, at weigh-in time they have to total to at least 180 otherwise i'm not allowed to compete and that rule is basically to stop people inflating their uh, their totals in order to get themselves placed into a higher group uh, in competition because obviously at things like the world championships there's a certain amount of pride that comes from lifting in an a group and it has been known for athletes to enter larger totals than what they're really capable of purely to get themselves into that a group and get onto the tv 
so that 20 kilo rule basically provides a little bit of a control on that to make sure that only the people that are genuinely lifting the bigger biggest amounts are, are going to be in that top group and that won't be a problem at the olympics though because uh, they're only doing one group per weight category so the people that have been uh, qualified and uh, offered a place at the olympics will be the people that deserve to be there and uh, so after weigh-in and uh, you then get a little bit of a break because you've got two hours between the weigh-in and when the group starts then get to the uh, the competition area uh, in plenty of time before the group starts minutes before the uh, the lifting actually starts the uh, athletes are presented on stage all of the technical officials are also presented at that point as well which sometimes is quite funny because you've obviously got lots of people in the crowd that are there to to support their friends and uh, and family that are competing and then they get asked to uh, applaud for the technical officials and there's a slightly muted ripple of applause around the <laughs> arena as the technical officials are, uh, are presented but it's it's a tradition that's always done so uh, so so that happens then and then depending on the job that you've got um you obviously you do your job through the rest of that the competition process some of the jobs are busier than others obviously as a referee you have to be paying attention through the entire process because uh, if you lose concentration for a second, then you might miss something that's, that's going on. The other jobs equally, even if you don't have very much to do, you have to make sure that you're constantly on the eye out for anything that's not right, because it's the job of all the technical officials to, to spot anything. For example, if the, uh, the bar's been loaded to the wrong, wrong weight, it can be a huge problem. And um, if you've got inexperienced loaders, it's something that can happen, uh, mainly because people in gyms are used to loading a particular weight onto the bar but the collars that we use in competition are two and a half kilos each. So you've got an extra five kilos on the bar than, than what it might look like if you're used to loading loading a bar in a gym. Uh, so loaders can sometimes be a bit confused by that. Um, you have to pick up on that um, to make sure that, because the last thing you want is a lifter going out onto the platform and, and lifting the bar with the wrong weight on it. They are awarded an extra attempt if that happens, but when you're doing the kind of weights that people are going to be doing in Tokyo, you don't want to be lifting four times. You, you want to be getting your best three attempts in, in your three attempts. And uh, being awarded a, a fourth attempt is not much of a consolation, really. But I'm sure in Tokyo there won't be any problems like that because the loaders would have been uh, would have been well drilled ahead of ahead of competition day. And then after the competition, there's only really one person that's got a job to do then, and that's the president of the jury. So the uh, the chief of the jury has to write a report about the whole competition which goes back to the IWF. Um, that includes any incidents that occurred. Usually there's not anything too bad around that, but anything unusual that occurred. And also a report on every single technical official that took part in the competition. Uh, so that essentially decides which technical officials are going to be picked for competitions in the future. So uh, it's always good to be friendly with the president of the jury. What are you wearing as a uniform? So it depends on the on the competition. The IWF standard is a dark blue jacket and trousers, white shirt um, with a, a dark dark tie. Um, for lower level competitions, sometimes it's a polo shirt. British weightlifting have technical official polo shirts, for example, um, which they're trying to move towards now, especially for things like youth competitions because it's just a little bit less formal. But certainly at the, the national and, and high level competitions, it's quite formal. It's a it's a suit and suit and trousers type and tie type uniform. Is there any effort to have female officials for female weightlifting? 
Um, no, it's completely um, balanced across the across the two. The, um, there is a rule that referee groups in international competition. So you have um, three referees that are actually on duty plus a reserve referee. And the rule is it has to be two men and two women on every single uh, referee group across men's and women's competition. And uh, I know that the IWF have a goal of having 50-50 representation, men and women across technical officials. I don't think they're quite there yet, but um, they are actively aiming to, to get to that stage where across men's and women's competition, it's, it's complete balance of, of um, men and women officiating, which I think is a good thing. This is something I saw in USA Weightlifting in one of their PowerPoints, and they called the athlete's uniform a costume. Is that yes. the that's the technical term for it? Yes. So the cos the costume refers to everything that the athlete is uh, is wearing, and that consists of a few different things. You've got the obvious thing is the lifting suit, which is the one piece one piece suit they wear. Fortunately, they're not quite as revealing as they used to be in the past. If you go back to the go back to the nineteen sixties and seventies, I don't know how some of those lifters went out on stage in those things. And they're a little bit. Uh, they leave a little bit more to the imagination nowadays. Uh, so that's the main. That's the main thing. But then you can also wear, underneath the uh, the lifting suit, you can also wear what's called a unitard, which can stretch all the way from wrists to ankles. And that was brought in uh, to allow Islamic women to to compete. Over the last couple of years, we've had the the first women from Iran uh, competing in international competition, and some women from Egypt as well. Um, they, they they wouldn't have been allowed to compete if they if they had to wear the the old costume rules, which didn't allow arms and legs to be covered. So uh, so the unitard is uh, single colour, single piece bodysuit that that's worn under the under the costume. Now it's interesting that quite a lot of lifters are actually starting to wear this now, um, despite the fact that they're not from uh, a religion or culture that requires it. Now there is a, a suggestion that they think that wearing a black unitard might make it more difficult for the referees to see whether they've got their elbows locked out or not but it might just be that they're more comfortable wearing a, a whole all over body suit i don't know but they, they, there is a certain amount of suspicion that some lifters are taking advantage of that rule from a tactical point of view which in sport we know is going to happen is it more difficult to see whether or not they've uh, locked out so i've refereed a few lifters wearing the unitard I couldn't say for sure that it made my job more difficult. It certainly didn't make it any easier to say that because when you're looking at a lifter's elbows to see where, where their lockout is, you do rely a little bit on the, the, the shadows and things around the muscles of their arms. And a very matte black unitard does make it, if anything, more difficult to see that. So uh, I wouldn't say that it, it's at a stage where it made it impossible for me to judge that lifter. But in a 50-50 decision, I could see how potentially it could make it just that little bit more difficult to see what's, what's going on. But on the other hand, if that's what's required in order to uh, allow those women to compete in the sport, then uh, I think it's what we have to do. Because uh, I think it's fantastic that we've got women from Iran now competing internationally, when up until a couple of years ago, they weren't even allowed to compete within Iran. So, uh, so it's a, and, it's a and big those, step for them. those lifters from Egypt particularly, they're no joke. Mm. Oh yeah, the e yeah. Egypt have got some some very good female lifters already. Yeah, and uh, and I think though, and the interesting thing is that some of these countries who traditionally haven't had women's teams because of the the cultural and, and religious issues around it uh, are traditionally very good weightlifting nations. 
So it's entirely possible that within a few years they, they'll all be producing um, kind of real top-level elite female uh, lifters, which, uh, which will be very, very good to see. Um, the two lifts in, in weightlifting are basically two different ways to get the, the bar from the platform to overhead. Snatch is taking it overhead in one movement. Clean and jerk, as the name implies, is, is done in two movements. Uh, a lot of the rules are the same for both of the two lifts, but there are some that are specific to, to each lift as well. The snatch being one movement has fewer rules attached to it than the, uh, the clean and jerk, and most of the rules for the snatch are exactly the same as for the for the clean. The first thing is obviously it's defined as lifting the bar from the platform to overhead in one movement. So it has to be one movement. You can't stop halfway. You can't lift the bar to the waist and then hoik it up overhead. That's called lifting from the hang, and it's, uh, it's specifically not allowed within the rule. The most common reason that you'll see a lift overturned in weightlifting, and often a very difficult one for viewers who aren't familiar with weightlifting to understand, is what we call the press out rule. This means that if you get the bar overhead, but your arms are not quite locked out, and then you complete the movement by just finishing the lockout of the arms once the bar is already overhead, then that doesn't that doesn't count as a good lift. That's, that's a press out and the referee should give you a, a red light for it. And that press out can be very small. The, the only criteria is whether you get your arms fully extended by the time you catch the bar over your head. So a good snatch and a good jerk involve the, the athlete jumping underneath the bar, arms are locked before they finish that movement under the bar. And that's one of the main things that the referees are looking for when they're judging, um, judging certainly a, a snatch and a, and a jerk. Other things that um, the referees will be looking for, um, they're simple things like putting the bar down before you're told to. It's um, one of the most frustrating ways, um, speaking as a coach now, one of the most frustrating ways for one of my athletes to, to lose a lift is to get the bar overhead perfectly. They're just about to be given white lights and then they put the bar down on the platform before they've been told to, to put it down again. Um, because the, the system of lights that are used won't tell the, the athlete to put the bar down until the referees have made their decision. So until there's a majority decision from the referees, nothing will happen. As soon as there's a two to one majority, then the buzzer will sound and the, the athlete can put the bar down. If they put the bar down before that, they lose the lift. doesn't matter how good their technique was up until then, it's a no lift. I've had it happen a couple of times with people that I coach and uh, it always leaves me with my, my head in my hands as they walk off the platform towards me, um, usually realising straight away what they've done. But as a referee then, it's kind of imperative to get that button pushed pretty quickly, correct? Yeah, so there's very specific rules about at what point we give that down signal. Okay. So the lifter has to have the bar overhead in a correct position, arms locked out. They have to be stationary. So if they're kind of staggering around the stage or rotating, um, you have to wait until you see that they're stationary before you give them that signal. And their feet have to be in line with each other as well. So if, you, if they're finishing with one foot forwards and one foot back, then you're just going to see that it does, does lead to some comical moments at competitions where the lifter doesn't realize what they've got wrong. So they're stood there with the bar overhead. The referees aren't giving them a red light because they haven't done anything wrong yet, but they're not giving them a white light either 
because they haven't got into the uh, the correct position to be given the white light. So you can be stood there for kind of 10 seconds waiting for the uh, the athlete to, to change their foot position. If their coach is at all switched on, they'll be screaming at them from the side of the stage to get their feet in line. But uh, sometimes it can take a surprisingly long time for them to, to get that right. And then as soon as they're in that position and stationary, then they get the signal. So it can be very, very quickly. It can be literally half a second. They get the bar overhead, half a second, they get the signal and it's done. It's just when they're, they're not, not in position correctly, then, uh, then they get made to wait. I'm just imagining this scenario. <laughs> <laughs> and the coaches, they're screaming, move your feet, move your feet. And they're just standing there trying desperately to hold this weight up. Yeah. And then um, one rule I should, I should mention that's only come in this year and it's catching people out because people aren't used to it at all, is um, you now are, have a lift taken away from you if you touch the barbell with your foot or your shoe. And that can happen uh, retroactively after you've been awarded the lift. So if you get the bar overhead, get given three white lights, drop the bar down, back down to the platform, and then as you go to walk off the platform, you kick the bar or the plates, any part of the what we call the barbell. So when we refer to the barbell in, uh, in weightlifting, that means the bar, plates, collars, everything attached to it. If you touch any part of that with your foot, then the referees will overturn the decision and your, your white lights will turn into red lights and the lift gets taken away. I have refereed one competition where I had to, where I had to give someone a red light for, uh, for this. So why was so, put into place? Yeah. The reason for the rule is, well, ostensibly it's uh, hygiene, uh, and there is some logic behind that. Everybody has to touch the bar with their uh, with their hands. It's potential. Sometimes you get people grazing their shins with the bar. So uh, if if people have kind of got their bottom of their foot all over the bar, then there is a, I guess, a potential hygiene region there. More likely, I think it's a cultural thing. There's um, there's some parts of the world where the feet and the shoes are considered something that you don't touch anything that you're going to touch with your hands and for that reason i think i think that was the reason why the rule was brought in and fair, fair enough um, there's also parts of the world where if you go into a weightlifting gym there's certain etiquette that you follow even stepping over the bar can be considered rude in uh, eastern europe for example I've, I've been into um eastern european weightlifting gyms where if you step onto the platform and just step over the bar, you'll be asked to leave the gym because because uh, you're disrespecting the uh, the bar and they they have a very strong. It's something that's not quite so strong in the UK and, and the USA, um, but certainly in in Eastern Europe, um, there's a very strong culture of showing respect to the equipment that you're lifting with and kind of earning the right to to lift that bar over your head rather than just treating it as a uh, as a piece of metal. So I think all of that kind of came together to to bring that rule in. And the problem is quite a lot of athletes historically have kind of had little parts of their routine which involve tapping the bar with their foot or spinning the bar with the bottom of their foot, things like that. So uh, all of those lifters have had to really relearn their, uh, their routine when they get out onto the platform. Otherwise, in the heat of the moment at a big international competition, they suddenly forget and they find themselves getting red lights for it, which, uh, which would be a shame for them. Wow. Is there anything else about the, the competition, the actual day of, that we haven't talked about that we should look for? Yeah, there's probably one more rule that I should talk about because okay. it's one that doesn't come up very often, but when it does, causes a lot of confusion um, okay. for people. It's what's, called the, it's what's called the oscillation rule. 
And even within weightlifting, there are people who don't really understand this rule. Suppose it's a little bit like the offside rule in football uh, or soccer, rather, uh, in some ways that everybody's everybody within weightlifting knows that there is an oscillation rule, but uh, a lot of people don't really understand exactly how it's worded and, and how it's applied. So this is after an athlete has completed the clean. So the clean is the lift that gets the bar from the platform to their shoulders. Uh, and they're, they're setting up for their jerk to get the bar overhead. Uh, oscillation is deliberately rocking up and down in order to get the bar flexing and bouncing. And oh. the, idea, the idea being that if the bar is bouncing up and down and you time your jerk right, when the bar is bouncing upwards, it gives you that little bit extra of uh, support. Now, this, this really comes into it when you've got a lot of, lot of weight on the bar. Amateur-level weightlifters won't get a lot of advantage from it, but elite-level weightlifters who are kind of putting huge amounts of weight on the bar, you'll see that the bar flexes a lot and you get a lot of bend on the bar. And even without deliberately oscillating, there'll be a certain amount of, of bouncing of the bar going on. And it's part of the sport to, to use that bouncing to your advantage, to time your jerk in order to take advantage of it. What you're not allowed to do is add any additional oscillation to the bar. So the referees will be looking out for, for athletes who are kind of bouncing up and down on their heels. Okay. And the bar starts, starts, starts off fairly emotionally and then suddenly it's bouncing up and down and then they make their jerk. That will be a red light. But where people get often confused is that they see these super heavyweight lifters with the bar bouncing up and down after they finish their clean. And they think, oh, that's oscillation. That should be a red light. But it's only oscillation if it's a deliberate attempt to do it. If they're just doing it because they've just lifted 200 kilos from the floor to their shoulders and... 200 kilos on the end of a weightlifting bar is going to bounce around a certain amount and then that's absolutely fine it's just the deliberate use of it that gets pulled up and that's a that's a rule that does cause quite a lot of controversy in weightlifting because uh, sadly historically it hasn't been applied consistently so even within uh, a single competition you might find that some some referees are very strict on it and some referees are, are letting it slide a little bit more which I don't think is ultimately the right thing. It should be it should be consistently applied, and then everyone knows where they are with it. So, within the officiating community, do you talk about discretion and being consistent and things like that? And if you're, do you get like a little talk before competition from the the head of the jury to yes. to so, get to, um, to spread talk about that consistency level? Yes. Yeah, so before certainly before international competitions, there's a technical meeting uh, on the. The first day of the competition, sometimes the day before the, the first day of the competition, where the, the competition director, that's the, the person who's basically running the entire competition, will reiterate certain things. And, and usually this is things that have come down from the IDUF that they want you to, to pay special attention to. Uh, so, for example, the last competition that I refereed at um, was the British International Open in July, which was an Olympic qualifier. Um, because it was an Olympic qualifier, it obviously got treated with an extra level of care to uh, to what, what there would normally be. Uh, and we were told at that competition to pay special attention to athletes locking out their legs at the end of lifts to make sure that in that final position with the bar overhead, they actually had their legs fully locked out because it had obviously been noticed at recent competitions that some athletes had been getting away with uh, with not being fully locked out at the end of lifts. So we, we were given specific instructions to, to look out for that. Uh, and that's quite a common thing that will happen, especially when new rules get introduced. So, for example, this rule about the, um, the feet touching the bar 
Uh, that's something that, that tends to be reiterated at every competition at the moment just because it's a new rule and technical officials may they may not have refereed a, a competition this year so far so uh, so they may need may need to be reminded of that but yeah there's lots of conversations happen but the important thing is those conversations always happen outside of the competition within within an actual weightlifting competition there's no communication between the, the referees at all there's no kind of um, discussion about whether a lift should have been a good lift or a bad lift. Each each referee makes their own decision based on what they see, so uh, they don't affect each other's decision at all. And the same goes for the jury as well. The jury can have a discussion when they're reviewing a lift, but when they're watching the lift live, they will make their own decision individually. So those five members of the jury will press their own button individually, and that's what decides whether there's a unanimous decision or not. And it's very important that they don't try to convince each other of, uh, of decisions because obviously that would run the risk of a dominant personality being able to, uh, to overrule other technical officials, which uh, is something that's, uh, that's avoided. That's really interesting. I think it's really important in weightlifting that everybody accepts that every referee calls it how they see it. What I see from my seat as a left-hand referee might not be the same view as what the right-hand referee has got. So they might press their red button for a press out for, for something that I didn't see. And that's not because they've made a mistake. It's just because they've got a different view of it than I have. And from their view, they could see that it was a press out from, from mine. And, couldn't. And, the, and the idea is that because you've got the three referees having slightly different views, if an infraction is bad enough to deserve red lights, you'll see it from two seats. And okay. so that you have a two to one decision. If an infraction is so minor that only one referee sees it, then okay, maybe it's it didn't deserve to be an infraction anyway, so uh, so it gets let through. Um, so yeah, there doesn't tend to be a lot of kind of criticism of referees' decisions, which I think is something that's nice in weightlifting that um, you don't get that thing that you get a lot in team sports where referees are being put under pressure <laughs> by players to, to oh, try and I know. decisions. You just you just don't get that in in weightlifting at all. You never get an athlete or a coach approaching referees complaining about decisions I've, I've uh, in, in all the referees in all the competitions I've refereed I've literally never seen that happen I've seen athletes and coaches frustrated by decisions but I've never seen them take that to the referees um, it's, it's just not part of the culture of the sport which, uh, which I think is really good Thank you so much, Dan. Dan is on Weightlifting House. You'll hear him on the podcast. He is also a publisher. He's got his own publishing company called Pip Strength, and he is a coach with the Warwickshire Lifting Club in the UK. And he is also an educational trainer for Eleco, which is a Swedish weightlifting equipment company. And he goes around and trains uh, gyms and users how to use the equipment properly. Now, you're an official. Yes. Love for for such things so what would be your weightlifting official job which one did you like oh my gosh well of course i like the idea of being one of the people who punches the button that would be interesting but i also wouldn't mind being at the table because i could do well with hey 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 wait your turn <laughs> you know what job i want what i'm gonna be the flower girl at the metal event <laughs> I don't want any of that. It's not an officiating job. I don't want any of that pressure of the speeding to change the weights and the guys holding the weight up and you got to hit the button. That is much too much pressure for me. Oh, I yeah. will bring the medals out and bring the flowers 
at so, the end. And and I gotta say, this is one of the sports where I'm excited to watch it at Tokyo because the officials are dressed to the nines. Like Dan said, at the high levels, they wear these suits. And I was looking at their website just for some officiating background and found their dress code guidelines. And let me tell you, it's an eight page document. And part of it is just the one page is just here's a list of what you have to wear. And pretty much the rest of it is guidelines for your tailor because you have to have the suit made a certain way. And it has to be a certain color, Pantone blue, and they give you all the numbers. They have the, the most of the rest of the document is actually like drawings of what it's supposed to look like. You know how designers make those drawings of clothing before they do it? Yeah, that's what, yes. it, that's what it looks like. So, so it's patterns and specs. Wow. This is the direction for the trousers. Classic with Swedish pockets. What is a Swedish pocket? I don't know. I've never heard of that. No, right? The women's pants have to have two Swedish pockets. Oh, isn't that nice? Finally, women get their pocket. So I'm glad about that. <laughs> and then they could choose to wear, they can wear pants or they can wear a skirt. The skirt has to be a pencil skirt, knee length, covers the knees, no waistband. Wow. They're very strict on this. They are very the blue strict. makes sense because having a specific color blue, because nothing is worse than when the blues are close. Oh, right. But a few and shades off. off. Yes. That probably would distract the athlete so much like, oh, your blue is just off. Yes. And it doesn't look good on TV. Mm-hmm. So I, I agree with right. giving them a particular shade. But that's really serious. It, it was. It was impressive. That is the most amazing guidelines I have seen when it comes to looking at officiating clothing. And I have to, I'm on a committee, so I have to look at this every once in a while. Um, good thing we don't have podcast guidelines for what we wear. <laughs> no, but we could have costumes. I'm ready for my matte black unitard. we're into fall and if you live in a place that celebrates halloween if you are a person that has trouble coming up with a costume every year just join weightlifting take up weightlifting as a sport you get a costume built in you get training you get some exercise and you get a halloween costume on top of it but yeah if you're in the northeast or the upper midwest you better be wearing that black unitard underneath your costume if you're going (laughs) trick-or-treating Otherwise, you will have some very chilly body parts. It is time for our Team Olympic Fever update. (laughs) Tofu. This is a segment where we provide updates on former guests of the show. And this week, we are going to talk about Erin Jackson. Erin is a speed skater who went to Pyeongchang, but she's also a roller skater. She does inline skating uh, competitively, uh, but she also plays roller derby with Jacksonville Roller Derby and went to the WFTDA playoffs last weekend. The team was seeded number seventh, and uh, although they didn't make it out of playoffs, they didn't make it to champs, they did walk away with two wins and one loss. Very nice, Speedy J. Our sustainability expert, Matthew Campelli, or as we like to call him, M. Camp, he now has a podcast. The Sustainability Reports podcast is out and is on their website, and episode one features loser Chris Mosder. Nice. And he has such a nice voice. I know. I, I, know. I don't care what he this. says. I'm just going to listen to him. <laughs> So we'll have a link to that in the show notes. And then finally, Laura Wilkinson, our Team Olympic Fever diver, took her first dive off the 10-meter platform since her surgery, which was last almost a year ago. It's like 10 months ago. Yeah, it was last December, right? It was right after Christmas. 
She said it was a little tough, didn't feel great, but she knows she has to work up just the way she did for the other platform heights. She's amazing. We are so excited that she got back up there. Let's move on to our Tokyo 2020 update. There's been a perpetual worry about how hot it is going to be in Tokyo during the Olympics. So while they had the test events going on, uh, the organizers have been trying different cooling measures. So the the canoe test event was last week, and they tried snowmaking machines to blow snow over the audience while they were watching. And they tested it out only in, in this little area where journalists were. <laughs> and it didn't shoot out the nice, flaky, delightful fluff, fluff that... <laughs> Oh, no. It was like ice pellets. And they called it very sharp shards of ice pellets <laughs> just slammed into the poor journalists as right. they were sitting there, soaking them to the skin, apparently, right. making everything super slippery. So one journalist took a tumble. Not good. Not good. This was not a good test. This is the Japan Times reporting that. So hopefully they know how to recalibrate the machine if they decide to use it or maybe just stick with misters this just to me sounds like the brady bunch goes to the olympics like this would have been a sitcom <laughs> episode where you know bobby and cindy are trying to come up with a way to cool everybody off and they come up with this ice machine and it just does not work very well and marcia's standing there screaming because they hit her nose with an ice pellet yeah I think that's pretty apt. Do better, (laughs) Japan organizers. One thing that might be better and more cool for TV viewers is Intel's got this new TV overlay that will show the speed of runners in the athletics events while they go down the track. And we saw the story on on TheVerge.com, and it looks really cool. The lane lights up as they move down the track. And it will show you in color how fast they're going. So they could start out yellow, they're going pretty fast. Orange, are getting faster. Red, they're really fast. Well, one of the things I know when I watch hockey in person versus on TV mm-hmm. is I'm always amazed at how much faster the athletes go in person. I'm always amazed by the speed. So I bet I've never seen a track and field event live. Yeah, I don't know. So I, I mean, I, that's the same effect. So this is... To cover that, to sort of say, do you understand how fast these people are really running? Camera adds 10 pounds and takes off 10 miles. (laughs) Apparently. This was really kind of an interesting piece of news from Business Korea publication. Samsung is having a little, I I don't know how you say this, but Samsung is one of the big Olympic sponsors. They're in their top program, which is like the highest level of partnership with the Olympics. The issue is Samsung's a South Korean company, and South Korea and Japan do not have great relations, and things have been very tense between the two countries politically right now, and it's kind of awkward for Samsung because they aren't really able to do big promotions about the Olympics in their country. Or, and do they want to? Right. That's another point. Because there's a political issue, there's also an, a huge economic rivalry mm-hmm. between tech companies of South Korea and Japan. So does a South Korean company really want to promote a Japanese event? And do they want to be seen as promoting right. a Japanese event? Yeah, that whole thing is very, it's interesting and kind of, it's 
awkward. But they're required by their contract with the IOC to do a certain level of promotion. Right. So we'll see what they do. It'll be interesting. Yeah. That's something to keep an eye on. I, I think it'd be an interesting story coming out of these games. You know, and especially coming off Pyeongchang, where they probably went... Oh my gosh, can you imagine how whole hog they went? Right, and now they're kind of backing off and saying, oh, well, we're not going to do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, they had a whole special edition phone come out for Pyeongchang. Right. So we've got some big news from Beijing 2022. New mascots! No! The most was... important announcement out of everything. <laughs> What are your mascots? And they have given me mascots. And unlike the mistake that Beijing made in 2008, they gave me a panda. I know. I know. And okay, uh, I I would argue that one of the five of those mascots from 2008 was panda or panda-like. But there were too many mascots. That was a huge problem. And they weren't as cute as this guy. So they've got a panda for the Olympics. And his name is Bing Dwendwen. And it is a very cute panda in some kind of speed suit. It's No, he's supposed to be encased in ice. Oh, okay. And then around his face is a sort of a rainbow pattern that is supposed to mimic an ice track. Oh, someone on Twitter I saw said it looks like he's wrapped in a diaper. Oh, I don't think so. When have you ever seen a clear diaper? Oh, but there's no spots on the panda. For, oh, and then he's got a, uh, what's the thing on his paw? A heart. He has a heart in his hand. Which represents the host country's hospitality, which, exactly. of course, that just, you know, gets you right there. Right in the feels. It does. So I will have to see. He's adorable. He's a panda. He, he has a sweet face. He has a nice little smile. I'll have to see how this encased in ice thing comes up when they're making the stuffed animals and doing the suits. Mm-hmm. Because that's the only part I'm slightly concerned about it. Because right. will he look like he's plastic right? and sort of lose the lovable fuzziness? Yeah, because he is, oh my gosh, they just nailed it. And then the Paralympic mascot is Shui Ron Ron, who is a Chinese lantern child, ready to welcome friends f- around the world for a big party. Okay, I, think, I have, think this is cute. I have one big concern about this lantern child. Mm-hmm. He has no mouth. He does have no mouth, which is he a little weird. He needs a mouth. But, but did you watch the video that came out with these? I did not. So its head is like a lantern. And in the video that explained how this mascot came to life, like the lantern was hanging up outside a house and a bunch of snow fell from the roof on it. And that white stuff around its face is the snow. I see that. Okay. So it may cover up its mouth. But or... wouldn't he look so... I mean, it's beautiful, first of all. The color yeah, is beautiful because really it's red, mm-hmm. which is very important in Chinese culture. And then it has bits of gold, also very important mm-hmm. in Chinese culture, and the whole Chinese lantern. I love both of these because I think they're both very sweet and very Chinese. Mm-hmm. And little kids will love to have either of these stuffed animals. But if Shui Ron Ron had a little smile on him, it would be an absolute home run. Now it's just a triple. But I think this is so much better than 2008, like a million times better. You you learned, stick with one mascot for each games. My other concern, Mm -hmm. they don't really relate to one another. How so? One one is an animal and then one is an inanimate object. Mm -hmm. Oh, and, and, and Pyeongchang, they were both animals and... 
Tokyo, they're both these robot creatures. Right. And the color schemes don't relate. That's true. They do kind of seem very separate from each other. Right. Which may be appropriate in terms of how they're going to run the Olympics versus the Paralympics. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're not going to put them together so much. And that may be good for the Paralympics. Give it more of its due. It's not an important second cousin. Mm -hmm. It's equally important so it can have its separate thing. But I would like them to relate to each other a little bit more. But individually, I love them both. Nice job, Beijing 2022. One thing I will note is when I saw the announcement, I was like, wow, why do they have to come out now? 2022 is a long ways away. And so I did a little look because I thought, well, maybe I'm just overreacting. I mean, they're uh, awarding the games so early now. And, and granted, Beijing was awarded in their seven-year time span, but it just feel like, oh, you're awarding the games so early. Do you just start doing stuff to be relevant? And I was kind of like, well, why can't you let Tokyo, Tokyo have, its, have its Yeah, have its stage. You can do your thing afterwards. Because Beijing released the mascots 870 days before the 2022 Olympics. So that's like two and a half years, right? Okay. Or close. Pyeongchang released them 618 days before the game started for them. So I'm like, wow, that's that's a big jump. But Pyeongchang did release them like two months before Rio started. So then you go, huh, you kind of took away something from Rio's. Right. So this is not even in the same year as the Olympics are going to happen. Right. They were in 2016. They released in 2016. They didn't wait until, you know, Pyeongchang, maybe you could have waited until September. And then be like, everyone's looking at you now, because you're next. But anyway, and then Tokyo released theirs on July 22, 2018. So it was after Pyeongchang, but still like 733 days before the games. Hmm. It's well, interesting. I, I don't mind them releasing it so far in advance, because I'm sure that they're going to sell them. Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> As part of whatever big store mm -hmm. is in Tokyo. There'll probably be a little display of these as well. Oh, that'd be interesting. I'll, I will look out for that. You have to see if that happens. But certainly when they do the tour, ahead of, when they do the press tour, mm -hmm. and there's always a little Olympic shop. Right. Part of the press tour. I bet these will be there as oh, well. Yeah, so if, if you're going to have to release it before the next Olympics... I definitely like that they pulled it way f away from that. Yeah. I mean, they're not competing with Tokyo right now. We're several months out. Right. We're still, yeah, we're still like 10 months away from Tokyo. So it is very different. It's not like, oh, Tokyo's next month. And hey, here's our mascot. Right. Pay attention to me. I do want one of those pandas. Aren't they cute? They are cute. <laughs> I, I will say like from a collect, if, if you were a collector, this stuff ain't going to be valuable. Just get it because you like it and it's cute. Because there's going to be a ton. There's going to be so much. How cute is Lantern Child going to look on a t-shirt? It's going to look cute on everything. On a notebook, on a pen, on a keychain. But not with dead fish. No. No, no keychain <laughs> with dead fish like they had at 2008. Well, we want to say thanks to our Patreon patrons and our donors. We are very appreciative of their financial support because that helps keep our flame alive. And you can help us out by going to... Our website and under the support link there is a link to patreon which is ongoing donations and patrons get uh, special bonus benefits including bonus audio 
or if you want to make a one-time donation, you could go to our PayPal link and do there. Do not forget that we are going to be talking about Munich 1972, our new book club book in uh, November. So get your copies now. You can shop through the Amazon link on that support page and uh, we'll get a little commission from your purchase as well. And that goes a long way to helping us keep the uh, lights on, so to speak. On that note, we will call it a show. And thank you so much for listening. We will catch you back here next week for more Olympic stories. And until next time, keep the flame alive. Stay in touch. Email us at olymfever at gmail.com. That's O-L-Y-M fever at gmail. You can also leave us a voicemail at 530-763-3837. That's 530-70-FEVER. We're on Twitter at Olympfever, and you can join in the conversation at our Facebook group, Olympic Fever Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive. Hey, 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 wait your turn.